So let us begin in the in the name of the breath of the all merciful, the all compassionate. And good morning to all of you and it's a certainly an honor to be with you all here today and for this purpose. My the title of my talk in the program you'll read is a uh, printed as Crossing Borders, The Problem of Human Belonging and Ibn Arabi's Theory of Perpetual Transformation. And while that is what I will talk about, or will try to, uh, to say it a little more plainly, uh, I, I would like to consider with you the, the relation between what the Shaikh calls the way of unveiling, or Gnostic realization of the real, of the one, the relation of realization to the possibility for healing action in the world. Healing action meaning um, action which in some small measure seeks to reduce the enormity of suffering in the world. Now, the question is often raised by students and skeptics of the path that uh, does awakening have anything beneficial to, to, uh, to give to our troubled world? Or is, is uh, Gnostic realization, uh, awakening, does it merely discount the phenomenal realm as a fleeting shadow? Um, and place all of uh, all value upon simply realizing God's essence realizing unity with the light of God's essence so I brought this question to the Shaikh uh, after being invited uh, to speak with you here today and and I, I feel like a, a small child wandering in his immense library uh, but I did hear a few hints from him, uh, combined with some ex- of the experiences of my own life, uh, that I'd like to share with you about this question. So although we, we are encountering each other in this basically intellectual fashion, um, I ask your permission for a few moments uh, to pause and that we may be reminded again of the breath of the All-Merciful. And consider together how this, this reality of infinite generosity is present with us now. It's every instant of our lives. How we can appreciate its, its uh, presence in our own breath. The, the breath we are each breathing this moment. How it is, how this breath and this one is given freely to us. The breath we will, we will take in a few moments from now, ten seconds from now, where is it? Doesn't even exist yet. And then, here it is. From where does it come? Completely gratuitous. Totally given. And we can 
consider each moment that way, completely given. Our sight, our hearing, sensation, this, this moment that we exist in is utterly and continually given to us. Now our breath, we might notice as we're breathing here, so ordinary, but how subtle it is. How the phenomena of breath has no edges. There's, there's no substantial fixed quality to breathing. It simply flows openly, gifted. And the gifting is the breath, as I understand it, the breath of the all-merciful. This gifting, this is which gives us this breath, this moment. Now, if we can maintain for a moment longer this kind of calm introspection of the subtle and mysterious nature of our breath, we can also perhaps appreciate the, uh, the same quality of open, formless presence of our awareness. This, this awakeness, this simple, ordinary awakeness in which the, the sensation of our breathing is registered, in which all emotion, thought, sound, sensation is registered. This capacity for for open awakeness, our simple existential awakeness, without content, just this, is what what I understand uh, the shaykh means by the heart. My heart can take on all forms, he says so famously, And he recalls for us in that, in his his writings and teachings, how the real is also of this same open quality, of the open heart taking on all forms. Actually, the essence of the real, these particulars of the world, we in it, as particulars, can only be here because of this, this gracious, this, this, uh, this generosity of the spaciousness, this open spaciousness of the real. It can take on all forms. So in this astounding way, our experience as human beings, our awakeness, our, that is continually filled with one sensation after another, one thought after another, replicates how, how God does it. How this, the mystery of the absolute and the relative are co-arise. So the, the very openness of our awakeness right now, this ordinary awakeness in which you listen to me and sit here, is 
is the same openness of the one. My teacher, uh, once uh, he was a wonderful speaker, and he, he, uh, I asked him once, how, did he do, how does he do, do that? And he told me, well, either I go into trance, or, more often, I just have one idea. <laughs> I just speak it. He didn't speak with notes. He just had one idea. And in a sense, this talk is really about one idea, which is, it's, it's not an idea. It's what I've been just trying to point to, this ineffable quality of openness that we'll, we'll explore around it in a number of ways and look to how it, what secrets it can reveal to us. It is so ordinary, though, that it is an openness in we look, normally we look right through it. But if you notice behind me, as I was sitting before listening to Jane's wonderful talk, I could, the, the way in which the, the trees, these branches are floating there and the colors and the sunlight has, she used the phrase, as if you can see him. And the as if is almost not even asking us to imagine it, but to see it as if it were seeable. But it is, how can one see transparency, openness? So it's this, it's this quality of openness that I want to speak about today. And, and, uh, and its power, it has, uh, with our engagement and uh, our living of these phenomenal lives, and when I, I, I rush to in to say, add that when I speak about our living or our engagement, in any other way I refer to these pronouns, uh, it sounds as if there's an actual subject who lives, who has an engagement or a life. But as you who are students of, of the Shaikh know well, there's actually no one home here. There's no, there's no one here. Uh, no subject. The subject is, that we experience is merely this openness. Or merely. <laughs> extraordinarily, this openness. So as we breathe, there's no one breathing. This living that is living is the one alone living through all of the particulars. Now, of course, there are apparent someones here, all breathing and living and thinking. But the closer we look for the, the someone who is breathing, we, we see through the apparency of someone here to what? There's nothing to be found. No self, no me, no you, just this openness. So I, this, this openness is the key, and I'll just keep trying to look at it, that I believe may help us a little in exploring the question of gnosis and, and action. So now holding this quality or this pointing toward 
openness. I'd like to tell a little story. Um, Richard mentioned that for a number of years I worked with uh, indigenous people in Burma and Thailand. And <clears throat> the people in Thailand were members of the Paganyaw tribe in northern Thailand. Uh, and I worked with them on issues relating to land rights and, and uh, cultural continuity. Now these people, the Paganyaw, are, are primarily animist with um, kind of a light overlay of Buddhism. And uh, on one occasion, a number of occasions, I brought uh, urban Thais and Westerners and others uh, from other Southeast Asian countries to visit them and discuss their situation, to help them with the rice harvest. And on the last evening of one of our stays, the village elders expressed to me uh, their desire to conduct a ceremony of gratitude and blessing for all of us, in which we could all share blessing together. So then they told me that in order to do this, uh, they had to begin with a specific ritual involving me as the leader of the group to prepare the way. The, the Paganyaw believe that we each, each human has 27 spirits who reside within us most of the time, but then they do go wandering off. Uh, and uh, that in order for this whole group, the visitors, there were 20 or so of us, and, uh, and all the villagers to share in this ceremony of blessing, they had to make sure that all of my spirits, or P, they're called, had returned to my body so that I was whole. Uh, and for that, the, the shaman uh, ritually sacrificed two chickens and he, he set up a, uh, <clears throat> cooked them and then he placed the meat on a tray, a special sacred tray with newly harvested rice. And then he, he, he uh, took an egg and placed it in the, up, upright in the, in the rice. And he arranged some, uh, some strings from my hand, from my hands, a number of them, to the tray. So I was sort of connected through these strings. There were maybe, we were in the middle of a big longhouse, bamboo longhouse. There were 60, 70 people around sitting there. So then uh, he began to tap the edge of the tray with his, a, a stick and in a sing-song way call the spirits, my spirits, back to me. And uh, he was praying there and after a while he took a, he had a little pouch around his neck. He took this little cowrie shell. You know, a cowrie shell is a little oblong shell pointed on both ends. And then he attempted to balance it on top of the, the pointy end of the egg. Well, every time he let go, the, the, the shell fell over. And uh, he kept doing it again and again, and each time the same thing happened, it would fall over. So this went on for about 10 minutes, and then I asked my interpreter, what's, what's he doing? And, and the interpreter asked and was told that, well, when, when that little cowrie shell balances up there on its end, that will signify that all my spirits had returned to my body and we could, continue, we could go on with the blessing ceremony. If... If they didn't, if it didn't balance there, then something was out of balance in me. My spirits were off. And we couldn't go through with this. So the pressure was on. I, oh, my God. 
I was, uh, I was shocked actually because I, God, how, I had no control, you know, and and uh, so I, you know, I started praying feverishly and pleading with God and the spirits and whoever they were just to come on this once. It was impossible. This little pointy thing. So. Anyway, no matter how hard I prayed there, uh, it didn't work. thing kept falling off. And, I mean, it was rather desperate and uh, went on for a good ten minutes. He's very patient. Uh, so at a certain point, I got tired of praying and tired. I didn't know what to do. It wasn't working. So I just, I gave up. Closed my eyes. I just didn't do anything. And I, there was nothing more I could do. So I closed my eyes there, and in a few moments, I heard this murmuring in the room. I opened my eyes, and the, the, the cowrie shell was balanced there. And my first reaction, ashamed to say, was, oh, wow. <laughs> and, but I didn't say it. You know, I was, oh, mm-hmm. But I went, oh, great. And it immediately fell over. So... Ah, and then the shaman picks it up again and tries again. Okay, I've learned my lesson, so I close my eyes again. Just when dropped back into not caring, not nothing. I'm not doing anything. Just opened right up. And another minute went by. I heard a murmuring. Opened the, my eyes again, and there it was balanced. This time, didn't do anything. No, no response. I just stayed open, and it stayed there. The shaman, he smiles and uh, begins tying on to my, in my wrists these uh, strings and blessing me and saying, you know, saying prayers. And I returned it to him. And we began doing the same for others in the room, tying strings and blessing. And then each does it to the other. And multiple times people, go, they, it was really lovely. So very soon it becomes, all the while the little guy stays on there. And they... Uh, it was a wonderful sense of communion, of blessing, everyone, and, and thanks that were shared. So the lesson I learned from this experience was that my spirits could only return to me and I could only be whole uh, when I was completely open. When, when um, from, from openness, blessings can flow. To the extent that I have, I, ha, I would have had an agenda, or I wanted to manipulate the world by insisting or pleading with God or any way to will something to happen, I was getting in the way, and and the world, in some way, could not receive blessing without it coming from this openness. So now to move from this story to open up our, our embrace of the, the perennial issue of the world's suffering. Um, one way we can, of course, uh, view uh, the violence, uh, the conflict, the greed and oppression, dominance of, that we see in the world is by seeing that it, it's expressive of, of an underlying separation. Um, the human condition as a contingent entity, uh, I believe, brings with it an intuitive subconscious 
um, sense. And I think this is not just in folks in the Ibn Arabi uh, symposium, but widely, that human condition is experienced both as apparent existence and apparent non-existence. And the apparent non-existence is, is, is subconscious for most people. That is, we don't, we don't really think of it. That there, but at, at its root, this feeling of what I mentioned before, that nobody's home, that there's not really a self in here, is well, it's what David Loy calls a, is this, experienced as a sense of fundamental sense of lack. And I, I remember as a little child, and maybe some of you had this experience, when you looked at adults, you thought, all those adults, they know how, they have a self. They, have, they are somebody. I have to learn how to be somebody. But this sense of, of no substantial place where I am, that's solid, uh, is, was always under there, was always this sense of, and there was compensation uh, in response to this sense of lack. Well, however that is, in response to this kind of basic sense of existential ambiguity, uh, the, the response, the human response is one of uh, seeking to, for security, for some kind of safety, some kind of safety in, in attachment to a belonging, an ethnic group, a family, a, a religion, an ideology, a nation, um, some identity, some, or multiple identities in which we can find security, safety. So these belongings, which are beliefs, certainly, I am this, I believe I am that, so on, uh, are in the, in the Sheikh's words, um, by these beliefs, we bind ourselves. And then we interact from our bindings w- with others in their bindings. We're peering through our knots and all these strings that hold us. Uh, hold us into our identifications. And it's not surprising in this condition that where there are conflict, conflicts arise one to the other. The, the self-protective origin of our, our um, urge to be bound or to be a, uh, connected to an identity, that self-protective urge comes in conflict with others. The self-protective, self uh, uh, this principle of belonging, this, this urge to belong. And these come into conflict. Bindings, by their nature, are our borders. They are their edges. They create edges. They are borders. They are the edges of our self-cherishing, our self-identity. Uh, so crossing these borders is what I've come to learn or experience as at the heart of uh, beneficial action in the world. Social action, political action, peace action, environmental action. To me, they are, they are effective to the, to the extent that borders are crossed in a good way. Now, 
in a good way. Obviously, crossing borders historically has been often, and not only historically, uh, but it's often uh, uh, seen as invasion, attack, intrusion, dominance. So the key to the difference between uh, attack and beneficial crossing of borders is just this openness that I've been pointing to. Uh, we, we invade or dominate others to the extent that our, our bindings are intact. Um, we cross borders with, uh, with grace uh, to the extent that our bindings are released. And when we, ident- when we encounter others with, uh, that are f- free of identity, or let's not say that. When we encounter others free of attachment to identity uh, and, a, and a specific belonging, this openness in which we meet is, um, inspires it in others. It, it's contagious. It's the dynamic quality of Isan that Jane spoke of. Now, I found it uh, in my work in the world, I found it useful sometimes to think of three particular elements of, um, or, or guidelines uh, that I'd like to mention briefly about this type of open encounter. And they're very simple. First is, uh, and I often tell students this, uh, the first is you have to show up. You simply have to show up. In order to be of benefit to others, you have to go to where the suffering is. Uh, you have to show up to it. Showing up implies presence, uh, being present to what is, rather than having judgments about what is. Being present means that there's a certain amount of truly present and open in that pre- Showing up is open. It, in its very nature, you, you are vulnerable in a certain way. Um, open-hearted, open-minded, no conclusions. So whether you're working in a war zone or you're comforting a, a child or you're, you're um, responding to a damaged ecosystem, you first have to simply show up to what is there, open to the whole situation. This is the first way in which Openness prepares us to be of service. And the second guideline for action that I found useful is following from showing up is to ask caring questions. You know, remember the old story of Parseval who couldn't find the Holy Grail uh, until he asked the wounded king, the wounded Grail king, what ails thee? What's wrong? And Just like that, there cannot be a real possibility for healing in the world until we approach the other with the same openness of the caring question. It's the very nature of a question, right? Is open. You get to the end of the, you get to the, I mean, that's what the genius of this title is the question mark. If the organizers of this 
if they put a period there, well, they have it worked out. But the question allows us all to come in the, it's a living, it's a living question. Uh, it, we can show up together not knowing the answer. Or in the Shaikh's word, words, uh, bewildered. We can be bewildered by this question and then it can uh, become alive. There's humility in this. And respect and compassion uh, to the extent of, uh, to the degree it is a caring question. What ails thee? What, what, um, what have you suffered? Um, what do you love? Even our, our, our common greetings when we meet each other. Uh, how are you? How's it going? They echo this, don't they? They echo the caring question. Um, and from this, in this openness of the question, then we can meet. Uh, when it's really truly asked, there is an openness there that then the greeting can happen. And out of that, the, the third element arises, which is simply to listen, to listen well. Uh, to listen without judgment, uh, with natural intuitive intelligence. So, like the caring question, listening in this way is of the very nature of openness. Right? If I, uh, if I say, you hear someone say, listen, listen, did you hear that? Listen. Notice what happens. We, we somehow for an instant we stop thinking, we stop whatever we're doing, commenting or and there is a turning toward a, a we, there's a natural way in which our awareness makes space. Listen. That space, this, that's this openness, this quality of openness that, that is in, in listening. And then we're, we're available to what is, whatever sounds, what's here, who is, who is in front of you. It's, my heart can take on all forms this same quality of valency. So from these three elements of, uh, of, of right action, as, as the Buddhists would call it, um, opportunities for healing naturally arise. And this is sort of a, it's not a fourth, it's, it's just what happens by showing up, by, by uh, asking caring questions and listening Healing, what, what is obvious, what is there to do, becomes obvious. You begin, you, you can be creative then with the, the whole situation. If I have a plan and I go into a, into a, tr- a troubled area or some, there is some uh, thing out uh, amiss there, and I have a, 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 I'm predisposed to a certain answer, uh, I can't listen to what's going on there. I can't feel it. And the creativity will be, uh, of everyone involved, will be diminished. Um, so for me, this, uh, <clears throat> this openness is the meeting place of gnosis and action. It's, uh, it's inclusive. Openness is inclusive. It is the creed of love that 
the Shaikh tells us, uh, his, his caravan turns to. Um, now, this all may sound a bit simplistic to some of you, uh, especially considering the elegance of uh, and the elegant complexities of the Shaikh's teachings. Yet, I, as in my reading of him, and uh, I sense that the station of no station that he speaks of as the ultimate condition of uh, of the Gnostic, of the people of unveiling, this condition is exactly uh, informed by this openness, by this spaciousness, by this purity of being. To take on all forms, the heart must be open. The eye of the heart must be open. It's not closed. It's open. And it both receives forms and lets them go. If, it's, if it gets filled up, it, it's, you're holding on. What we hold on. To that extent it gets filled up, we hold on. And it, <clears throat> it no longer can take on all forms. This is what uh, Nagarjuna, the great second century Buddhist uh, sage, said when he, he said uh, that Nirvana is the letting go of what arises and passes. Nirvana is the letting go of what arises and passes. It's really identical to my heart can take on all forms. Um, In fact, closer to home here, uh, this is also echoed by this famous little few lines from William Blake, when he said, uh, 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 bu- 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 he who binds to himself a joy doth the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Same thing, isn't it? It's allowing what is to be here and Without without binding ourselves to it, without without grabbing it and insisting that it continue to inform our and describe the real. So this is, as I understand it, what the Sheikh means by perpetual transformation. Um, it's no to jump to jump traditions again. It's no different from the Tao. It is this, this flowing of the watercourse way in which then healing is, is possible. Now, I, I should also add that I, I don't believe that uh, openness in itself that's, that I'm speaking about in relating to the troubles of the world is, is naive or lacking in discrimination. Uh, I think by showing up, one... Uh, it means, as I said, showing up to the whole, the whole situation, to what is. And this includes uh, uh, recognizing limits and right timing. A situation like Iraq now, it's so, it's so messy, so conflictual. There are so many bindings <laughs> at work that 
in order for the healing power of openness to work, it, it, it has to come slowly and by degrees. We, uh, as I say often, the soup is burned. And, to, you know, to try to fix a burned soup, it takes a little while. Sometimes you have to start with an empty pot again, if that's possible. Um, how are we doing? A few more minutes. So, in conclusion, I'd like to mention a, a project that I'm involved in that Richard uh, already mentioned to you, the Abraham Path, because it does in a few ways express or, or illustrate some of what I've been saying. So the Abraham Path, uh, it's called the Masar Sayyidina Ibrahim, is initially an 1100, conceived as an 1100 kilometer uh, Hiking trail, hiking trail. We first thought we we were first calling it a pilgrimage route. It can be that. It's easier to call it a hiking trail. It doesn't confuse people. Um, that runs from Haran to Hebron, from Haran where Abraham first heard the call to go forth, Lech Lecha, and ending where his his uh, tomb, where he and Sarah and others are buried, in Hebron in Al Khalil. Uh, now, the path, the Masar, is similar, as Richard mentioned, to the Camino in northern Spain. And yeah, ultimately, it's conceived that will hold other, it include other paths, perhaps up from, in better times, from Ur in Iraq, also to Egypt, to Mecca, or from Mecca. Um, it's been, the project's been in a, uh, study phase, research phase for the past three years. And uh, it's been organized, being organized through Harvard. And it's now, it's growing beautifully. And it's now, uh, there are organizing committees in all of the uh, countries along the path, the five main countries, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Palestine. And uh, soon we're planning that the, the actual base, the headquarters of this whole thing will be in one of these countries and that Harvard will have a, uh, a, just a supporting role so that it's actually from the region, sort of helping to midwife it. Um, chapters are being formed around the country, uh, around the world. And the first 150 kilometers of the trail are now being, as we speak, uh, uh, waymarked, surveyed and waymarked through, through Jordan with hopefully an opening, the first major opening of a section will happen next, a year from now, next May. Ultimately, there will be way stations built, hostels. There's already a process of creating a host family network so people can stay in houses along the way. We understand that the project's going to take a good decade or two or three to, there no, seems to be no hurry, uh, because it's once you establish a path, we feel it's, it's there for generations and generations, well, hundreds of years, thousands perhaps. Um, now, of course, the Middle East, as that quote mentioned, is a region that typifies um, the karmic accumulation of, of belongings, of binding to belongings, religious, tribal, national identities, in conflict with each other and, of course, with the outside, and my own country is a glaring example of 
proceeding into a into a situation with its bindings intact. You remember when Abraham first heard the call to go forth, uh, God said, go forth um, from your father's house. Leave your father's house to a land that I will show thee. So Abraham's act of faith, it's central to his his, uh, functioning as this icon of, of faith, among the three religions, uh, his act of faith at its root, as I understand it, was exactly this willingness to leave his father's house, to, to, uh, to let go of the bindings of the past, of, of tradition, of his tr- particular traditions. He didn't have to deny them, but he left that house uh, into the unknown. He didn't know where he was going, into openness. So his, in a sense, Abraham's heart could take on all forms. Now, the Masar holds the promise of people walking and traveling by other means, because they may also do that by bus, visit at different sites along the way. Uh, and it involves crossing borders, obviously. Uh, national borders, borders between regions and villages and so on, borders between people. Uh, as people be- begin more and more to travel on this path, there will be millions of encounters. Uh, and just like Abraham, people will be, will be called to leave their father's house in order to encounter the other. Um, the deep quality of hospitality that's in the region um, is going to support this happening. The elements that I spoke of showing up, people are naturally showing up there. They're naturally going to be asking questions of each other. Oh, where are you from? Who are you? Where, what do you do? How are you? Um, and listening will happen. This By itself, this process will happen. We're... we're uh, we're working to, with people in the Middle East to kind of seed a very basic light quality of what we call an Abrahamic adab, a, a courtesy, a, a, um, yeah, a spirit of courtesy by which travelers along the Masar will, will be guided. An adab, basically, of openness and respect. Gradually, over time, opportunities for healing are going to emerge by themselves. In fact, even in the creation of the path so far, that's already been happening. I can mention uh, several examples, but new opportunities are showing for cooperation. Now, if any of you have, have walked by foot through the countryside, you know that the pilgrim on foot is, uh, well, blessed in a number of ways. You can't carry much with you, so you have to leave everything behind. You, uh, you leave your baggage behind. You, you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't have an itinerary in the same way a tourist has an itinerary. So you have to be ready. Yeah, I mean, not ready. You have to be open for the unexpected. Um, this 
makes of the pilgrim, gives the pilgrim a quality of vulnerability which is deeply respected by the people who live along the path. They know that you're kind of out there, far away from home. And that inspires in them, and uh, it, it works both ways, it inspires in them hospitality, welcome. What is welcome? But again, the, the gesture of welcome, of human welcome, is openness. Again, oh, you're welcome. Come in. Abraham's tent was open on four sides. Everyone was welcome there. Um, so, besides grand projects like, like the Massar, um, modes of, in which openness, or this principle of healing I'm talking, can occur are not just you know, isolated for, big, for external activism like that. Wherever there are borders... Um, wherever there is separation, isolation, resulting from a tendency to bind ourselves to certain attachments and identities, uh, this capacity to show up, to be there, to take on all forms, whether it's with your parents or your kids or anything, it can happen. It, it, this this, this kind of basic principle of activism can take place, of openness, of showing up, asking caring questions, listening. And uh, as the shaykh tells us, then the caravan can turn any, any which way. And, and love, which is the intimacy, is, is this intimacy, intimacy of openness, um, allows the breath of the all-merciful to, to flow. So enough said, and we have a few minutes left. If any of you have any questions, be happy to respond. Thank you very much for a most uh, inspiring presentation. I think the, the central thing that um, appealed to me most of all was the way that you work from direct experience. And I think that in itself is, is healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you once again. Um, could you kindly tell us, uh, or tell me perhaps, this path, Abraham path, this um, so many kilometers, which parts of Palestine and Israel and places will it join in? The path is there. It's very interesting to me because I do observe these mm -hmm. um, parts of the world. Yeah. Well, in, in, uh, <clears throat> initially, we see it as a kind of almost like water flows. There may be a number of... Uh, uh, parallel paths. We won't just have one line. It may, because it will be visiting various sites along the way that are uh, sacred to each of the religions and have something to, not only sacred, but may, may speak to their relationships over the centuries, some of them quite troubled. So perhaps one path might go to a crusader castle. It might. In any case, in 
Israel, actually in Israel it doesn't go very far initially because it's, uh, it's, uh, <coughs> it's all in the West Bank. I mean, the Israelis are in control of it, but uh, will be coming up, the, the first path will be coming up from through Jericho and up through Jerusalem and then down past uh, Bethlehem to, to Hebron. But when, as um, the situation changes, it's pretty clear Abraham probably walked, well, who knows, but it's 4,000 years ago, he probably went over the Golan Heights, down through uh, what's now Israel, and Nablus, and, and so on. So um, that's not possible now, but it may be soon. Um, so we will... We're <clears throat> it's also going down to Beersheba in, uh, in the Negev. And perhaps that's how it will go down and connect with Egypt. It's not very clear what, where he went in Egypt, but, uh, that I understand. So it's more of a, a mythic path uh, in that regard. Jane. Needing to be in um, a kind of having a sense of timing. Mm. Yeah. So my question to you yeah. is, do you think that this arising of the Abraham path in these regions is an indication that the, the timing is now such that this can happen? God willing. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm just asking you know, for an some, impression. No, your your yeah, impression of well, what you think. Well, there are people who say, who say it's wrong timing. Uh, some people, some people, but actually, uh, most of the people in the region are extremely welcoming to this. It's, um, I believe it is. I think there might, we might see a a real shift go on in the Middle East over the next decade. And if that takes place, then this this cross-cultural encounter that a path like that is going to only feed that. It will come in many, many ways. The Masar is just one part of it. So timing, we'll, we'll, we'll know. The Jordanians, for example, are taking this, have you know, the bit and the teeth, they are running with it. They're very keen. Turks as well. And Actually, Israelis and Palestinians would love to move. It's just it's such a messy situation there. It's a little hard to walk over the landscape without provoking suspicion. So very likely in Palestine, there will be initially, when people come to the border, they're going to have to be guided. They'll have to go in groups so that it's sort of registered. Rather than on the Camino, if you're familiar with that, people, you, we could just go. We could go in the Camino, you walk alone, you walk in a group. There is no registering or anything like that. But entering Palestine, initially, I imagine for the first number of years, bands of people will have to walk together. The last one? Before the coffee break, Mr. Herty Stein, said that there are people who say that God is only on our side. Now, just interestingly, last week, I was listening to the radio, as I usually do, and there was a composer, Danish-born German composer, 
akkor dit, had ik Buxtehude, uh-huh. and he was very much admired by Bach, and one of his motets, Der Herr is it mit mir, which means that the Lord is with me. Now, you must have come across people in that part of the world who think that God is only with them alone and not with others. Mm-hmm. Did you come across with, uh, uh, such people, and what did you do to mm-hmm. try and make them see the other side of the argument? Yeah. Uh, <coughs> um, <laughs> I was... I'll try to do this quickly. Um, one example, I wrote about it in one of the letters from the road in, at the end of it, a uh, recent one, where I was in Damascus and invited to talk to a group of uh, Shiite, um, you know, at, the, uh, at one of the shrines there. The, what's, uh, I'm skipping the name. In any case, <coughs> the uh, Rukhaya, uh, Sayyidu Rukhaya Shrine. Anyway, there were 40 very intimidating Shiite um, elders there. And they asked me to speak, and they were with me. You know, I mean, first of all, I'm an American. What am I doing there with telling, talking to them? But I knew the imam, so he, he had invited me. And I had just had a, um, I just had a little uh, be, uh, granddaughter, my first granddaughter. And I had just come from, you know, I'd been with her, and it was hold, had held her in my arms, and so I told I spoke to them, I told them this story that I had a little granddaughter and I was just holding her like this and looking at her and suddenly that I realized, oh, I asked, what religion is she? And, and I said, is she Muslim? No. Christian? No. Jewish? Buddhist? What is she? She's God's religion. And all oh, they... And the same, I said, what country is she from? Is she really American or is she Syrian? What country does she know? She's, she's from God's country. And in that telling, these uh, august characters, um, they melted. They, suddenly I was a grandpapa like them, an uncle or something like that. We were all on the same side, at least for those few moments. We all had felt that wonder of, of like holding little Vera, uh, that oh, this this uh, this direct amazement, the openness actually of the man, a woman too certainly, but for a man to hold a baby, you have to. It inspires openness, and so I believe going towards it, pointing towards it very gently, the, our own vulnerability as humans, one to the other, melts, can melt the binding. Slowly, again and again, we, we try. And thank you for your question. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you.